This time on Poll Hub, does Florida's recently enacted so-called don't say gay law begin turning back the clock on LGBTQ Americans? We're looking at the polls and talking with an expert on the long arc of history from Stonewall to today to find out. Then, are parents of school kids the newest key voting demographic, especially the ones who the media has portrayed as being super angry about how COVID has played out in schools? We're looking beyond the headlines to see if that's the case. Finally, this being the start of baseball season and some of us on this show being big baseball fans, our fun fact is perfectly timed. So Lee, here you go. Let's play ball. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Depp. And I'm Barbara Carvalho. And I'm Lee Marinoff. We uh, start today on a topic that we've talked about in the past. In fact, Lee, um, we've talked about in your classes before, because in politics, public opinion, one of the most um, dramatic changes in public opinion on a social issue in the shortest amount of time was about same-sex marriage. And, and that's an example that, that we've used in your classes before. Um, and so we've had a lot of conversations about this, um, but a new law recently enacted in Florida that some are calling the don't say gay law. There are um, a lot of different opinions about what's in it and what it may mean. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But um, we thought it would be interesting to ask the question, what is this and other laws that seem to be um, cropping up in legislatures around the country? What does this say, if anything, about this arc of, uh, of uh, the social justice movement concerning LGBTQ people? And uh, so we thought we might need a little help in, in uh, this history and in what it might mean. And uh, so we welcome to the show Michael Bronsky, who is professor of the practice in media and activism in studies of women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard University. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So what does it mean? And, and I, we can talk a little bit about what this, what this law in Florida actually does or doesn't do, uh, but then I do want to get to what you think it might mean uh, in the broader context uh, for what has been a fairly rapid um, uh, change in opinions about gay people, LGBTQ people in America over the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Sure. I think it's, it's pretty clear, at least to me, right, that um, this law, and, and we've now seen in the past week, we've seen, I think, four other states enact or propose similar laws to it. I think it was Indiana, Ohio, I think Kentucky was one, um, you know, is basically a, a sort of last ditch panic attempt on the part of these conservative legislatures to actually do something against, as you mentioned, right, the enormous wave of acceptance that's been happening certainly since 1969 with Stonewall, but, but more, more and more rapidly with same-sex marriage and with the decriminalization of homosexuality, uh, which is you know, 2003 with Lawrence v. v Texas. Um, I think it's also important to point out um, that these are not new laws. There are actually a bunch of laws a, a group of laws that were passed in the late 80s, early 90s, that were labeled the no promo homo laws in, in I believe, five states. Texas still has it, um, which was that you could not promote homosexuality in the classroom in any way. Um, and there's still four states that still have that law in regards to sex education. Right? And those laws were passed in the late 80s, early 90s, basically as, again, a, a panic response to the HIV AIDS epidemic. Do you find it surprising that at this point uh, this is uh, being promoted by uh, particularly the, the Republican Party as, a, uh, as, as an issue that they feel they can make headway in the midterm elections? Let me just um, cite some polling because um, this is 
as Jay pointed out, we have seen a dramatic shift uh, over what is thought of as a short period of time on these issues. Um, but I mean, it's, there's actually a consensus among Americans, uh, you know, for, for tolerance, um, you know, uh, for uh, gay Americans. Um, and I, I think that uh, people feel that there has been a great deal of progress and they define it as progress. Um, and yet, you know, a large proportion, 46% of Americans, according to a CBS poll, um, actually uh, believe there's still a lot of uh, discrimination, particularly towards uh, transgender people. But my question to you is, because there's such a consensus on these issues, do you find it surprising uh, that the Republican Party is using this as uh, uh, something they think they can they can get a foothold with um, for the midterm elections? Uh, paradoxically, I don't think I'm surprised by it because I think that um, they've sort of run out of issues they think they can win with. <laughs> um, and also I think that, I mean, I think there's a conflation here, right? That there's, it's interesting, and, and again, historically, this goes back to all the gains made after Stonewall that, you know, throughout the 70s, the first big uh, pushback was Anita Bryant and Save the Children campaigns, uh, beginning again in Florida uh, and growing across the country, um, right? And that, in fact, the uh, no promo homo laws were a response to HIV AIDS, right? Um, but that all of these laws actually focus on children and on protecting and saving children. And I think the conflation that I mentioned earlier, right, it really has to do with this sort of, uh, I would consider the craziness about pedophilia that's being promoted by QAnon. <laughs> you know, we had Marjorie Taylor Greene accusing the three people voting against uh, Judge Jackson Brown as being pedophiles. Right, so there's something more. There's something more going on than just the the anti-LGBTQ agenda, right? And it's it's a it's a larger conservative cultural focus on children, and not on children because they actually don't care about children, but on using children as pawns in a political game. Certainly, you're completely correct. It's about the midterms. Does seem. I mean, I I, I agree with you about this broader issue, but when you mentioned the no promo homo. Um, legislation, it actually meant, it actually sounded like don't say gay is, is not quite as vile. I mean, because uh, that sounded really rough stuff. But the, um, you know, to what degree do you think that the, this is a bigger, bigger cultural battle? Uh, there's books being banned in, in schools. It has to do not only with the gay community, it has to do with, you know, Black Lives Matter. It seems to be a broader cultural clash, part of this uh, wedge issue that's going on. Um, to, is that, can, can you have a few bars? And I think I interrupted your thought though there. Sure, no, I think, I think that's completely true, right? Because I think when you look at the move to ban critical race theory from being taught in third grade, which of course never happens, it's taught if it's taught at all in law schools, um, Right, that that again, it, it's all centered around children, but it, it's not, and again, I'd like to say that it's not just an LGBTQ issue, right? It's actually spread out about race. It's spread out about any number of other things. And um, what I find interesting, right? So, I do, well, what I find really interesting is the fact that it's using, yet again, using children as pawns in this larger political game and notions about children's innocence 
um, and, and children having children needing to be protected um, and, and you know, children not being taught to hate themselves if they were white children in a classroom. Uh, but I think that what, what's going on is, um, is really the, that, that there's been so such enormous changes with LGBTQ, with uh, George Floyd, with uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, with also with, with, with Me Too as well, right? I mean, we, we've actually seen, I mean, I certainly never imagined in my lifetime that there would be same-sex marriage and now it's completely accepted. I mean, I also never expected to see that marijuana would be sold in three different stores around Harvard Square. <laughs> <laughs> And that, and that people, I mean, legally sold in Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Important right. distinction. Thank let, you. Let me be historically clear about that. Um, or that, you know, the New York Times is running op-eds about the use of psychedelics for mental health. <laughs> so there's been, you know, since 1945, the end of the war, there's been enormous changes. Slow at first and very quickly. And I can only imagine that large segments of an increasingly small conservative population are more and more panicked. I want to put give you two figures from polls, recent polls, and 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 wrap kind of with this uh, question. One is a ABC News Ipsos poll that found six in ten Americans oppose legislation that prohibits classroom lessons about sexual orientation and gender identity in schools. So that's basically the the Florida don't say gay law. Six in ten. And uh, PRRI, which is the Public Religion Research Institute, has been surveying uh, Americans about support for LGBTQ rights for a long time. The highest level they've ever found of support for that uh, in the latest poll was 76% of Americans supporting laws to protect LGBTQ people. It, it, these two numbers seem to suggest that the tide of, of uh, public opinion, the tide of history, uh, has already come in. Uh, and that that in in these laws that we talk about, which again you point out are not really about LGBTQ, they're really about something else. Uh, but the the tide of history has already come in. Is there, when you see these numbers, historically the risk that these numbers can be rolled back by uh, these kinds of laws and by these kinds of attacks uh, on fears of uh, pedophilia in children, things like that? I think there is a danger of that. I think the danger comes from if these laws are actually written in such a way that that target, and I, I think some of these laws are, right, that target very specific things. So actually saying the law is really about teaching K through third grade is going to be a more, more effectively targeted to having people agree with them saying K to 12, right? Although there was a law I just read yesterday, there was a law I believe in Georgia that was actually going after private schools as well as public schools too, um, right? So that I do think there's a chance of that. I think that being essentially sort of an optimist, I think that they'll ultimately fail because of, of the deeply entrenched um, and, and deeply felt changes that have happened. I mean, right, poll after poll has shown for the past 50 years, that people who know somebody who's openly gay are more is that that person is more likely to approve of of pro or positive LGBT laws, right? And with more and more people coming out, um, children, uncles, cousins, students in classes, right? That 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 wave is not going to stop. I do think people could put a dent in it by actually uh, crafting laws that would that would have some support. 
right? But I also think that we, what we see is, is the sort of showmanship part of this. Like I think taking on the Disney Corporation, a, a multi-billion billion dollar corporation that you know that exists essentially to sell, sell to children to create children as a marketing tool, <laughs> right? Um, aside from being entertaining, you know, um, is 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 essentially foolish because you I think you can't beat the Disney Corporation, right? <laughs> I, I mean Oreo cookies just released another rainbow Oreo with a coming out video by Alice Wu, the great uh, fairly young film film director. You know, I, I, I think one thing on the side of progress is actually commercialism and, and consumerism. Um, and that while some of these laws may have some, some small impact, maybe in some states or in some districts, that ultimately that they, that they can feel because, because in fact, you know, it's not a wave of change, it's actually a deluge. I would just add to your comment there that I think some of the danger of any change does involve who's running for local office candidates for local school boards, state legislatures, in other words, under the um, the screen of a Donald Trump, there has been a lot of stuff occurring electorally underneath that I think is creating uh, perhaps a bigger threat because a lot of people are running for office who are sharing uh, the views that are counter to the national public sentiment. Yes, I think that's true. And I think you also have to factor in religion here too. Um, that in fact, I mean, we just had a case in Massachusetts where the um, a Jesuit school, which is essentially that taught a small group of, of men of color, young young men of color, flew a rainbow flag and a Black Lives Matter flag under the American flag, and the local bishop asked them to take it down. Right? I mean, the bishop had no jurisdiction over a non-diocesan school, and we certainly see the wave of of um, what people are calling Christian nationalists. Um, targeting some of these issues about uh, teaching a range of sexual education in public school and right and a rise of home homeschooling, and again flourishing on under under the um, regime of Trump, these got more. They certainly got some more power. I think they got far more publicity than they probably got power, um, which is not to say that they can't cause damage. But but also I think we need to realize that every, you know, every wave of progressive uh, motion in cultures is met by a backlash in some way. I think this backlash is um, is 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 serious. I don't think it's actually fatal, and I I think it's actually getting more more publicity, um, not on this show, <laughs> but more publicity in places that it that it's actually merited. Um, I mean, most of the no promo homo laws were repealed, although I have to say the last one in Utah, I believe, was repealed in 2021. <laughs> so that, did take, that did take 30 years to actually repeal it. <laughs> well, we, we just uh, got the anti-lynching bill uh, at the federal level. So uh, sometimes that arc of justice, as MLK said, takes a really long time. And that bill was actually promoted by Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In 1938. <laughs> Well, Michael Bronski uh, from Harvard University, uh, you have a, a book that came out in 2019. We want to promote that too, A Queer History of the United States for Young People. So uh, you can find that. And that was the young people's version of the, of the other book that came out in 2011 called The Queer History of the United States.
So thank you for joining us, very informative. And, and thanks for adding your insight, uh, especially in framing this in a way that I think uh, is bigger than what we often see when we're just looking at a specific law and a specific protest. So thanks so much for coming on. Good, thanks for asking me. Well, hi everyone, it's Mary Griffith, Poll Hub Executive Producer, crashing the discussion today. That was quite an insightful and powerful discussion with Michael Bronski. And I wanna pick up here with this idea of ch children's role in the political discourse, specifically talking about um, how they fit into the political discussion about COVID-19 and the potential impact on the midterm elections. Uh, according to one veteran GOP strategist, Parents perceive that children are really bearing the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of their education and their experiences socially. So Barb, what are we seeing in terms of the numbers? Where do parents stand and what is the sentiment out there? Could this, as this Republican strategist, uh, as this Republican strategist uh, portends this to be a red tsunami come November? Welcome, Mary. It's always uh, good to have you uh, with us. Um, I think what we're seeing is um, a, a number of different issues. We saw a January NBC poll found that a significant majority, 65% adults, were more concerned about children not going to school in person than were concerned about uh, being in person uh, and, and that potentially resulting in uh, the continued spread of COVID. Uh, but there have been a lot of different polls which have also shown an overwhelming support among parents for how schools uh, and their communities handled COVID. So again, um, you know, similar to I think what we were chatting about in the last segment, um, I, I see more of an issue of uh, this becoming a wedge issue with political uh, intentions for the midterm. Um, in the in the 1990s, we had the party of the, uh, the Republican Party, which was um, you know the, the the party of family values, and I think um, and I think a good amount of of this um, kind of harkens back to this time, particularly uh, with uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell recently declaring that the GOP is the party of parents. Um, and to put this into somewhat of a, of a you know, a, an election context, um, in, when, when Joe Biden, when Joe Biden won um, in 2020, one of the biggest inroads that the Democrats made was in the suburbs which surrounded urban areas throughout the country. Suburbs um, that um, are inhabited by um, you know, people who uh, tend to be um, you know, more of a mix politically, uh, particularly suburban women uh, who may identify as independent or who vote um, either for Democrats or Republicans, depending upon the issue. And I can't help but get a sense that this is, this is actually targeted um, you know, to those individuals for the midterms to, to, to gain those back, those individuals back um, into the fold. And look, children, you know, children are front and center uh, for, uh, for, for most of us. So um, it's, a, it's definitely a very uh, significant issue and one that's going to have political impact. So Lee, your, uh, our friend Amy Walter at Cook um, wrote a piece about uh, angry parents and, and the, the gist of it was that angry parents could be, you know, this decisive voting block. Jennifer Rubin in the Washington Post 
uh, followed up, not directly, but followed up with a piece in the Post that looked at the Virginia elections where Governor Yunkin, a Republican, won in biden districts. And many people said, well, it's because the schools in Virginia and angry parents. And she looked at uh, some data that showed, in fact, it was a silver tide that, that seniors were the ones who were the difference makers of Virginia. So is this a story you think that's a media narrative or do you think there's actually something real here? There's probably, you know, a, an effort to mobilize certain segments of the electorate. Um, I'm not sure that the Virginia case is quite as real as the Republicans wanted to. I think Terry McAuliffe kind of stepped in it uh, by kind of framing the issue and in, in the debate he had there as, you know, sort of leaving parents out of the equation. Let's just deal with, you know, I mean, the whole thing got a little muddied. Um, I think also I, I would suggest two things into this. Uh, one is I think the Republicans are trying to figure out a way to kind of not only have a wedge issue against the Democrats, but also move a little bit away from Donald Trump's obsession with the 2020 election. Um, the idea they want to have an agenda that goes from their perspective forward, as opposed to talking about what went on, which is losing uh, some salience. So I'd say one other point on this, and Mary, I think you might be able to jump in on this as well. Um, the, you know, for, for kids who are six or seven years old, you know, a good portion of their life was spent under the umbrella of COVID and what all that meant in terms of their development in a, you know, in their age and, and schooling and home and all those kinds of things. And, and I, I mean, I don't have any young kids, but I can imagine this was a lot of tough thinking that went into what what was one do uh, with, with children that one's trying to raise in this environment. Although I might add just and jump in uh, uh, for, uh, uh, with, the, with this Lee, um, that, I think a lot of the research has uh, has shown and is continuing to show that younger children are actually those that are most likely to be able to make up for um, the time uh, that they were, uh, you know, schooling from home as opposed to uh, being uh, part of the in-person classroom. Uh, actually, it's, you know, the, they're finding that uh, the transition is going to be more difficult for students who are not going to have that many uh, years in school um, after after COVID. But but Mary, you know, you were you were also on the on the front lines of this, and I and I know that there's the you know we, we've talked a little bit about you know the frustration of having to be you know all those things and you know uh, you know teacher and 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 mom and all the other responsibilities, but also the difference between that and and what policy is. Yeah. So. I'm the resident mom on the panel or the resident parent on the panel today. You're a parent I, expert on the show. <laughs> I, I would not go as far as to say that, but um, certainly I can lend some perspective on this. Um, I get the anger. 100% I get the anger in terms of COVID. But for me, my anger really was prior to the 2020 election. My anger was, well, if the local schools would have done more or acted sooner when the pandemic was on the horizon, you know, would things have been contained? Could things have been different? Um, you know, and then they've raised all the questions as my kids went back to school, they went to in-person the following September, which was, how is this all gonna play out? How protected are my kids gonna be? And then of course, the big question, which a lot of parents I think debate and were concerned about was the idea of wearing a mask. And did we go too long in wearing a mask? Now, what I will say is, you know, as a parent, 
when you see your child hurting, you know, I have a friend um, of the family who always says that you're only as happy as your saddest child. And that is the truth. Um, now that I'm, I've been a mom for, you know, my oldest will be nine next week um, for not, almost a decade. You know, that is 100% the truth. And so we perceive our children as bearing the brunt of this because there are good days and there are bad days. And because they do not have a voice in the political system, we need to advocate for our children. And we need to put out there what we perceive as their best interest. And that's tough. That's a tough position to be in as a parent. I think masks have been a very big deal. And I think it's going to be interesting to see if there's another wave, if um, students need to wear masks again, if mask mandates come back into play, you know, where, where things will stand. Um, one other thing that I did want to bring up is what's also difficult is the vaccine mandate. You know, uh, I live in New York City. And when that came down, um, I felt a little bit of control taken away from me because you're, you're um, adults were able to go out to dinner if they were vaccinated, but your kids not necessarily. And when that came down in New York City, uh, Santa had spoken to mom and dad about a big event that um, uh, my boys wanted to go to. And Santa had already put that present under the tree, so to speak, and we needed to make a decision whether or not our children would be vaccinated and be able to attend a large event or whether or not you know they'd have to forego that. So there were different aspects of this debate and it is very difficult. Um, but if you if your children are hurt, if you perceive the government, whether local or federal level, um, hurting your child indirectly or if you're perceiving it to be directly, yeah, I think there is gonna be some backlash at the ballot box. But I do wanna throw out there, how much of this is a question of uh, party rather than parenting? You know, is this real, are we taking into account, are we holding partisan beliefs and ideology when we're looking at these numbers? Is it really that aspect of whether or not you're a parent or whether or not you're a partisan? I think that's a good framing of it, right? Because I mean, parents are partisans too, just like the rest of us. And everything these days is framed through these partisan visions. Uh, and maybe that's what this is. We're seeing one part of it and not looking at it as the broader part of the partisan thing. But um, Mary, thanks. That was great. Thank you for sharing. Fun fact time, ding, ding, ding. play ball, everybody, as Jay said earlier, switching gears. But here's an interesting uh, fun fact, going way back in time. The question was asked by Gallup in 1943, uh, provided to us by the archives at the Roper Center at Cornell. Do you think that professional baseball should be continued during the war, World War II, obviously, or should it be stopped until after the war? National audience, 59% wanted baseball to continue, 28% wanted it to stop, and 13% didn't have an opinion. Uh, so we're talking better than two to one on that question back then, wanted baseball continue. Although I must say, as I recall, an awful lot of, I don't recall, as I have read, a lot of um, major baseball players joined the war effort because that was a different kind of war as we heard later on in other uh, battles and uh, conflicts, uh, that the country was very unified behind that effort. And so to have a major athlete uh, go into the service and support the, the, the folks, the troops overseas um, was a, a welcome thing, which also, if you remember that movie, A League of Their Own, uh, did create during this time uh, women's baseball at a professional level. So there was all kinds of things going on in World War II. When we talk about the impact of war in society, baseball was certainly not isolated from that. We should try and find a poll from like 1946. It, it, after the war, did people want women's baseball continued? 
let's get our producers to work on that, right? Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, it did last. It did last a little, but uh, it did phase out. As, right, right. Uh, no, but it's interesting if anybody pulled on that. Uh, Barb. I think sports are also seen as uh, during these uh, dramatic and traumatic events uh, as as uh, just giving people a sense of normal. I think back to uh, 9/11 in 2001. Um, we it was. Uh, you know, obviously September, but you know we were going into the the uh, the playoffs of the baseball season, uh, and there was a question as to whether the you know baseball should continue to finish out the season or whether you know we should just put a, a halt and reflect. And um, I I remember very clearly, uh, you know, uh, President George Bush throwing out the the first ball in Yankee Stadium. Um, because that was a sense of being normal and getting back to what Americans, uh, the American way of life is, I believe it was put at that point. And we can even relate to it now, uh, you know, during and post COVID, uh, it was very important that the seasons for many of these professional sports continued. Um, and it was a, an important way to, for Americans to feel that things were, were still, still moving forward and that there was some kind of normal ahead. Following the assassination of President Kennedy, which was on a Friday, professional football did go on on that Sunday. Um, and that was a source of some discussion also, not as significant as what had happened to the country, but whether sports should be part of that, uh, that weekend, which it was. That'll do it for Poll Hub this week. Poll Hub is a production of the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. The Poll Hub team includes Ashley Marcinek, Athen Hollis, and Emily Fry. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Marist Poll Academy, our free online learning portal. If you have questions for us, Tweet them directly to at Maris Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub and with any luck, it'll cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcasting app as soon as it's released. We'll see you next time. Next time.